Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. We are talking about the original Woodstock. 50 years later, there's a mammoth box set that includes 38 CDs and chronicles every moment of the Woodstock Festival on audio, except for the times when the sound system was just playing albums by other people to fill the time. They couldn't include that. But other than that, you can listen to this 38 hours and basically astrally project yourself like Dr. Strange into the original Woodstock Festival. And I have with me the man who made this possible, Andy Zachs. Hello. Welcome. Thank and you. And you worked for how long on this thing? Well, in aggregate, from start to finish, was about 14 years, but that doesn't mean 14 continuous years, thankfully. You know, we began working <laughs> on it in the lead up to the 40th anniversary, and then there was sort of a long interregnum period, which was useful because technology caught up to where we were and what we needed, and it gave me a few years to think about what direction I might want to take this in or what the right shape for it was. So we've been working in earnest for about the last year and a half, and I don't think I've slept for about 12 months, so it's been long. What was the biggest thing or things that you learned about this festival? Because as you made clear, our entire idea of it is distorted, sometimes in a very beneficent way, by the movie and the album. We believe that Jimi Hendrix's performance, especially the Star Spangled Banner, was this climactic moment, which it was. It was an incredible performance, but no one was really there. It was incredible and climactic because it was the climax of the movie. So what we know is a very filtered version and a very idealistic version. It could have been a comedy <laughs> if they had done the Grateful Dead set where everyone was getting shocked and the music kept falling apart. So anyway, so what did you learn that you didn't know? By yeah, I mean, there, like there is this alternate version of Woodstocks. I mean, there's a lot of alternate Woodstocks, but you know, the Woodstock that we mostly know or that we think about when we talk about Woodstock is the Woodstock that we see in the Michael Wadley movie, which is a swell movie, but it takes liberties with chronology and event. And, you know, as you say, the Hendrix performance at the end, you know, that's a really cathartic emotional moment at the end of the movie. So it's good that it's there because at Woodstock, it meant nothing because nobody actually saw it because they'd all gone home. <laughs> so there were a lot of other moments that actually happened in the moment at Woodstock that had, you know, if you'd asked somebody who'd actually been there, what were the really significant things that happened? Nobody would have talked to you about Hendrix because they didn't see it. They would have talked to you about Canned Heat or they might have talked to you about Joe McDonald. But Hendrix was sort of was a thing. Well, I had to be back at work. So I left. That's what everybody always tells me about Hendrix. I'm most surprised that some of the attendees had jobs, actually. <laughs> <laughs> of course they had jobs. They can't have was, all been those. It was, uh, was mid-century America. Yeah. Everybody had jobs. <laughs> there were jobs aplenty back mm -hmm. then. So we actually have, you mentioned him, we have Country Joe McDonald, one of the legendary Woodstock performers who had uh, some of the most long-remembered moments but on your box set, for the first time, the complete Country Joe and the Fish performance is included, as well as a solo performance. Joe, are you there? Here I am. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here. You're quite welcome. How important, again, is the festival in, in your own memories? Because, you know, for some people, it was just another gig. For some performers, it was, you know, say Roger Daltrey, The Who. It was a very important moment for him personally. Did it feel important to you? at the time, or did it feel like just another gig? Well, it certainly didn't feel like another gig. I was there for the whole three days, and uh, I'll have to uh, take challenge to what you said about the Jimi Hendrix performance, because I was there listening to him play the Star Spangled Banner, and I was standing there out from the stage, you know, wow. very close to the stage watching him play the Star Spangled Banner. And also, there were like a lot of people there. There was twenty or 30,000 or 40,000 people there, of the half a million people, there was a lot of people gone. But when you consider an audience of 20,000 or 30,000 people, uh, that's a pretty big gig, isn't it? 
That's a good point. It's a good Definitely. point. I mean, for me, it is. Uh, you know, if I'm performing in front of 20,000 people, I consider that a really large gig. So there are all those people. So I saw him perform there, and it was a wonderful experience the whole three days. I got there on Thursday, and I left on Monday, and uh, I was on stage watching a lot of the shows, and I had a wonderful time. I never thought about the historic significance of it, but I do believe that, that the Woodstock Festival film and album changed everything in America and the changes are still happening right today. It's still a challenge between the mores and the tastes of the Woodstock of the World War II generation and the Woodstock generation. That battle is still going on. Well, stronger than ever actually today, you know. But everything else got ingrained into society. We take for granted all the things that Woodstock brought us. Colors, sound, fashion, music. It was the basis for modern rock and roll as we know it. And a huge generation grew up of musicians playing all that music on those three albums was phenomenal, phenomenal. I think you said that you actually hadn't planned on a a lifelong career in music and Woodstock actually kind of led you on that path when, of course, the fist cheer, I feel like I'm fixing the die rag, became one of the absolutely indelible moments of the whole thing. You know, when I was in high school, I was in the concert band, the president of the band, student conductor. I wrote my first rock and roll songs when I was 15. But by 69... We had already been in the Musicians' Union for several years and had toured. We played Monterey. We played uh, quite a few festivals. We had a very, very busy schedule, and um, 69 was the release of two LPs. So I would say that uh, my musical career was chugging right along pretty well. But it was the birth for me of a solo career as Country Joe McDonald. The band was breaking up in 69, and uh, I don't know what I would have done. Well, something similar. I would have continued to be a musician, I'm sure, just to pay the rent. And I had a lot of fun doing that. But that launched Country Joe McDonald, that uh, impromptu performance of solo singing The Cheer, which still cannot be said on radio and television, which is really... I have good news that we're on satellite radio. It actually can be said. We can say it here. All right, so, I mean, the introduction of the fuck cheer and fixing to die rag and the bouncing ball uh, really mainstreamed the word fuck in a way that it had never done before. And it launched my solo career and made me infamous and famous at the same time. You know what? That can be a very good combination for a career, as you know. I think one of the things that's interesting is your fans were there and they knew what you were going to do as soon as you called out for an F, right? That's correct. There's a really uh, simple logical reason for that, which was that the year before at the Schaefer Beer Festival in Central Park, we had introduced the fuck cheer. We had changed the fish cheer, F-I-S-H, to the fuck cheer that night. And we were banned from the Schaefer Beer Festival and the Ed Sullivan Show forever. And there was a station, probably WKRP uh, in New York, that was playing Fixing to Die Rag every day. I remember the Vietnam War was going on. Hundreds of people were being killed every single day because of the Vietnam War and the draft. People were being forced to go into the military and, and go and die in Vietnam. So that was a statement in the song that everybody could identify with. But I didn't think about that when I was asked to perform, to just do something on stage, just to fill in some time for the Santana band to set up and, and get ready to go because they were running behind time. So they just asked me to go out there solo and got a guitar. I didn't even have a guitar and tied a piece of rope to it and pushed me out there. <laughs> so I did a few songs, which you can now hear on the box set. And uh, then I came off stage and I asked uh, my business partner, Bill Belmont, my manager, if I should save. I was saving the fuck cheer and fixing to die rag for the rock and roll Country Doe and the Fish set, which was later on that night. And he right. said... 
nobody's paying any attention to you. What difference does it matter what the hell you do? <laughs> and so I thought, okay, that's great. You know, nobody was paying any attention to me up to that point. And then I went out and I yelled, give me an F. And they all stopped talking, looked at me and yelled F. And they responded. I didn't know they were singing along until Michael Widley brought me to L.A. and showed me the film. And then I could hear... I could see that they were mouthing the words. You know, from the stage, I couldn't see that. And from the stage, I couldn't really hear them singing, so that's why I was yelling at them to sing louder. <laughs> uh, but I was shocked. And then from the box set, I found out that the crowd spilling fuck and yelling fuck and the, and the letters was overdubbed in the studio because the sound wasn't loud enough because of the way they were placed the microphones. That must, was, that must have been a fun day in the studio. But I'll just interrupt you for one second, just so we can actually hear that moment from Woodstock. Give me an F! <laughs> yeah. Give me a U! Yeah. Give me a C! Yeah. Give me a K! Wow, man. It's strange, but I get goosebumps listening to that. I really do. I don't know how you react to it. You probably heard it a million times, Joe. No, I love it. It's great. And it really cuts through the bullshit of uh, politics and everything. You know, I was banned from all the municipal auditoriums in America over that cheer. It gave me a lot of problems. Of course, you couldn't play it on the radio, you know. Uh, so my most famous song couldn't be played on, on the radio. Some people lost their jobs for playing it on the radio. But it's it's great. It's a great moment. I'm happy and proud that I could represent the Vietnam War and Vietnam veterans in that moment. It was very powerful, and we're all lucky that Michael Wadley was there to capture it. He filmed the guy who shot yeah. the foot of me and made the executive decision to put it in the film. He also wanted to put in a giant F-U-C-K, but they put the uh, nicks on that. They said, no, that was too radical. But when you think about including the fuck cheer on that album in 1969 was just unbelievable that they allowed it to go in the movie and on the album. Absolutely. Joe, before I let you go in a couple minutes, a couple things. I mean, you mentioned loving the Hendrix performance. Since you were there the whole time, what else stands out in your memory from other artist sets or backstage moments? What were your favorite moments? I'm sure these are well-worn memories at this point, but I am curious. Well, the Santana band, of course, was uh, just incredible. I mean, that, that footage from the film is unbelievable. And over the years, the film and my live experiences have melded in a certain way. But Sly and the Family Stone, of course, it was fun watching Abby Hoffman get hit in the head with a guitar by uh, Pete Townsend. I was there and I watched that, watched Abby run through the crowd. That was very entertaining. You know, everything was really entertaining and really wonderful, a uh, spirit of peace and love. And just in the past couple of days, I've been watching some of these documentaries and I'm just astounded. I really am astounded at the size and the volume. The whole thing is just unbelievable. You know, when you look at that footage and you hear that music and all that music was brand new, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was brand new at the time. It was so exciting to hear that music played so wonderfully. Wow. Just, uh, incredible, really, really incredible. How do you feel about, you were smart enough to back out of the Woodstock 50 uh, debacle before it officially got canceled. How oh, do you I didn't feel back out of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I never backed out of oh, it. Oh, okay. All right. As a matter of fact, we got a notice like three months ago from Michael Wadley's team, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. And I followed it in the news. Nobody ever told me anything. Oh, okay. I followed it in the news just the same way you followed it in the news, and I found out a couple of days ago because... I was afraid to back out because I was afraid that I would lose my deposit because I got a 50% right. deposit. And sometimes if you cancel, then the promoter can blame right. it on you. So I was <laughs> waiting for it to fall apart. Right. It, it became obvious like a couple of weeks ago that it was going to die. 
And then when it fell apart, I cashed the check, and uh, there you go. <laughs> That's a very smart move. Any other plans then to commemorate the thing, or are you just going to uh, go on with your life? I'm retired now. Last, I did a series of performances of electric music for the mind and body, a rock and roll sets locally uh, with a band. We played the whole first album of Country Joe and the Fish, and then I did a show telling stories and talking about uh, Woodstock locally at the at our local venue. And now I'm done. I'm, I'm finished. I'm completely retired. I've been dabbling with being retired for a couple of years, and now I'm just uh, watching the grandkids staying home and getting to know my neighbors. Well, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, it is. It really does. <laughs> Joe, thank you so much for being here. It was a, a true honor, and uh, it was wonderful. So thanks again, and it was great talking with you. You're quite welcome, and thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I want to take a moment and talk about Vivid Seats. Staying at home is great, but eventually you just got to get out of the house. Whether you go out to see your favorite band or go cheer on your favorite team in person, you got to get out of the house. you got to have a night out. And with Vivid Seats, you can attend the concert of your choice, the sports event of your choice, whatever event you're looking for at a great price. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all the live events you might want to go to. On their site, you can sort by price or look for seats in the section and row of your choice. You can pick the seat you want. To make things even better, Vivid Seats is giving listeners an exclusive promo code for new customers to receive 10% off your first ticket order to save even more money. Just go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers can use promo code Rolling Stone. That's R-O-L-L-I-N-G-S-T-O-N-E for 10% off your first Vivid Seats order. Every purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. From the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more, Vivid Seats has it all. Download the app and enter promo code Rolling Stone for 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. We're going to be talking in a little bit to Michael Carabeo, who was the percussionist who they cut back and forth with Santana in one of the most legendary rock movie moments ever. So I'm very excited about that. What a cool thing. But Andy, we were talking about the stuff that is in this box set that people haven't heard before. I think for sure one of the most significant things, and you've been going around with John Fogarty talking about it, is the entire Credence set. Yeah, it's amazing to me still, every time I hear it, like, how did this thing escape being released in its entirety for five decades? Because it, it's just that good. It's top three Woodstock, you know, along with probably Sly and The Who, I would say. Those are the indelible trio. Plenty of other great stuff as well, but as far as stuff that will just knock you flat. Yeah, the Credence set is incredible. Not in the movie, not on the soundtracks, just sort of lying low for several decades. It's kind of maddening because Credence might be less of kind of a faceless memory in the cultural imagination and might have ascended to a different iconic status had they been in the movie. At the same time, you know, you never know. It might have added to their sort of mystery that they weren't seen. Who's to say? Who's to say? Maybe it would have somehow been worse for them. Hard to say. I mean, but, you know, think about all the songs he'd written before Woodstock. That reputation was secure. And those songs feel like they're, and I mean this in the best way possible, they feel like they're a million years old. You know, like Stephen Foster or Irving Berlin or something like that. I mean, they're that canonical and that important. So, yeah, they were going to be fine regardless credence. Nevertheless, hearing them actually blast through this stuff, they're like the Ramones of Woodstock. They come on and they're ferocious and they just crank this stuff out hard and loud and then they're gone. And 
tight, tight in a way that, you know, perhaps the Jefferson airplane were not, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a very different kind of jamming. You know, it's yeah. totally different from like the airplane or the dead or anybody else who's jamming at Woodstock, which can be when it works, when the magic hits, it's astounding. But Credence are much more, they're more linear and they're more rigorous about what they do. And so the force of it is tremendous. I got the sense that Fogarty, who obviously, to say the least, has had his differences with these bandmates, may have gotten a little bit more appreciation for his old bandmates listening to this. I could be wrong. He hasn't listened to it yet. Ooh, okay. Okay. (laughs) I just noticed a certain more, a greater solidarity in the promotion of this thing between him and the other guys. So it's just wishful thinking, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's one of those things a lot of people wish for. It just, I'm not going to hold my breath. Well, let's hear the beginning of this song, Bootleg, which is funky as hell. And it's funny, Andy and I had the same rock geek reaction to it. Let's play it for a second. First of all, I mean, just those bars are just incredible. You can loop it. I could loop it forever and listen to it. But the reaction that Andy and I both had is that it sounded like Krautrock. That's a motoric beat. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's what Klaus Dinger called the <laughs> Apache beat on all the Noi records. And it's it's what Jackie played on all the Can albums, too. <laughs> it's very, very strange. So you have the, right, the songs sound like they're a million years old. At the same time, you have them projecting 10 years into the future with this weird sort of Can slash Noi groove they get into. It's very interesting. And it's also like we've all grown to appreciate Fogarty's songwriting, but it was a killer band. Great drummer, great everything. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're kind of remarkable. I mean, Krautrock aside, I mean, they feel to me more like they're sort of like the missing link between you know Eddie Cochran or Link Ray and television that's the pocket I'd put them in and it's less evident on the records and more evident in their lives yeah you can really hear it on the big blow up at the end of the set this 10 minute version of Suzy Q which is explosive yeah like the end of that it's wild and and maybe in a minute we'll get to hear that but what else in all these hours whether it's unheard moments from famous sets or unheard sets altogether jumped out at you? Well, there's all kinds of things. I mean, to me, the great lost performer of Woodstock is a guy named Bert Summer, who you might know if you know him at all for having sung on a couple of left bank tracks. Is, is he the guy who covered the Simon and Garfunkel song? Or is that another moment? No. no, no oh, well, he's co- yeah, he covers America. That's, that's, that's yeah, the yeah, big... He gets yeah. the first standing ovation at Woodstock. And you can hear why when you hear it. He's got this unbelievable voice. He's very, very Tim Buckley-esque. And it just... He connects with the crowd like nobody's business. He's really great. And it's a sound that it's not really in evidence on any of his studio records. The studio records have great songs, but they tend to be overcooked to a certain degree. Um, the material's there and the voice is there, but they don't totally work as great records. Exactly. I've heard a little bit. That. I, I would recommend people to check out that version of America that he performed. It's very interesting. What else? I mentioned Canned Heat because I think about Canned Heat a lot when I think about Woodstock. They probably got the largest response of any band at Woodstock by far. Um, and they were the loudest band at Woodstock, too. Absolutely explosive. And they've kind of been, you know, it's odd. Their historical reputation has receded for whatever reason. You know, they were an A-list, top-tier band in 1969. Can't you know, yeah. Yeah, a premier live attraction. And hearing the Woodstock set, you really will understand exactly what was great about them. They were a juggernaut, and they prove it over and over and over again, and the crowd just loves them. Between them and Sly, those are the two biggest crowd responses at Woodstock, and they just work them into a frenzy. What's your favorite? favorite canned heat moment you know it 
in some ways, I don't know, the encore version of On the Road Again is, is tremendous, or the 30-minute Woodstock Boogie, which is pure <laughs> canned heat at its, at its sprawling best. But the greatest moment might be when Chipmunk interrupts Bob the Bear Height on stage to tell people, this is one of those kind of recurring Woodstock motifs that you really hear on the box, which is these messages about getting down from the lighting towers, which occur with unbelievable regularity and increasing irritation. Well, you know, it's interesting. That's the one link that I always make to Woodstock 99 because that was one of the most disastrous moments of Woodstock 99 was when people started tearing parts off of the lighting towers during Limp Bizkit sets and crowd surfing on it. So there's a weird sort of poetic resonance there. And as you said, the original Woodstock could have become an Altamont if there wasn't such solidarity among the crowds because it was a disaster organizationally, no doubt about it. Yeah, it just shows you goodwill and dumb luck in more or less equal proportions can get you pretty far. And it did at Woodstock. I think people were kind of on good behavior. This was still new. People didn't know how to behave at a rock festival. They taught themselves. What else had you never heard? And actually we have On the Road Again by Canned Heat. So let's jump back and dig a little boogie sure. by Canned Heat, man. The new Black Keys album kind of sounds a lot like that, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, so you were going through some other moments that you discovered. People used to think I was crazy when I would tell them that, you know, the stage announcements from Woodstock are actually, that's just as important as the music. But now that people are sort of hearing a bit more of this stuff or kind of beginning to immerse themselves in it, I think the thing that I was trying to explain to people for years is making a little bit more sense because that's the texture of Woodstock. That's the glue that binds the whole thing together. It's its part of what makes Woodstock Woodstock. And so when you hear that stuff, it immediately situates you in you know, time and place and just what you're hearing. And you're right in the middle of the summer of 1969, in the middle of everything that that entails. And it, it is transporting in a Doctor Strange kind of way. <laughs> What were some of the most perhaps interesting to talk about technical challenges and logistical challenges in assembling this thing? Well, there were tons. The main issue really is that nobody in 1969 or 1970 when they were working on the movie would ever have dreamed that 50 years later somebody would actually want to restore the whole thing or would actually have as a goal to glue it all back together. So they were pretty cavalier about the way they treated the tapes. Well, actually, let's take a step back. Describe how they were recording it. Okay, so the basic recording setup, and this was relatively state-of-the-art, and this was state-of-the-art for 69. They had two eight-track recording machines. Eight-track was as good as you got in 69, and those were in a truck three or four hundred feet away from the stage, and there were two guys manning the tape machines in the truck. One of them was Eddie Kramer, the famous producer. The other was a guy named Lee Osborne, who actually owned the machines. So they were the tape ops, basically, and they just sat there running this thing, or trying to, under weird, difficult conditions. So, And there was also a soundboard feed. Somebody was running tape off the soundboard as the bands played. So there was a kind of a raw mono feed that you also get, and that was lucky for us because that was what we used to patch a lot of tires, as it were. So with all of that stuff, there are all kinds of technical issues. There's voltage issues, and they were constantly, for some reason, this is the kind of thing that would get you kicked out of recording school today, (laughs) they were constantly repatching instruments from channel to channel in the middle of songs, particularly during the first songs. So it was often a real nightmare to just figure out where did the bass go? It was here on track two. Why is it now on track seven? And where did it go for those 15 seconds where we, oh, we don't have any for 15 seconds. Now what do we do? So all kinds of technical problems like that. Those are the first order technical problems. The second order problems are that the people who worked on the movie and did the sound 
didn't care how they chopped the tapes together and glued them back. So they threw things away or they stapled things at the end of the wrong reel or they mislabeled boxes, things that took us literally years to get to the bottom of. It was like the world's biggest and most impossible jigsaw puzzle. So there's there's a lot there's a lot to get through. <laughs> it must but, have felt like they were torturing you on purpose when the instruments oh, yeah. stuff from yeah. No, there's a lot yeah. of there, there were a lot of dark nights of the soul kind of dealing with this stuff where you kind of you get through something and you think, Oh, this is just fine. Oh, listen to this. Hey, this is great. Wait a minute. Wait, it just it went dead. Where's the 90 seconds? We're missing 90 seconds in the middle of this song. What happened to it? And sometimes the answer to that question was a, that was a four-year project trying to figure out where that inverted piece of tape had been glued at the end of some kind of completely inappropriate reel. And it just, it was horrible in that sense. But there were technical issues that literally couldn't have been solved until maybe a year or two ago. We had this issue with Ravi Shankar, whose multitracks were taken from the site even before the concert ended. Ravi Shankar's producer intended to make make a live album out of his Woodstock set. He was even advertising it before the concert took place. So as soon as Shankar was off the stage, he was like, well, got to get that record going. Let's take the tapes and leave. So he took the multitracks and went back to L.A. And when they listened to them there, Shankar was dissatisfied with his performance and basically said, well, let me just redo it here in the studio. Nobody will know. So he played the entire set over again in the studio and they overdubbed some of the crowd noise from the tape on it. And they released that as an album in 1970. And then the multitracks vanished probably forever so all we have left of the real woodstock performance is one mono soundboard reel oh my god that is in non-optimal quality (laughs) and then technology saved the day there's a, a guy in london he works at abbey road studios he's an engineer there his name is james clark and he's developed a completely game changing new technology giles martin calls it demixing And literally what he's able to do is a computer will analyze the tape. We gave him the mono recording and it can then break the tape apart into clean multi-tracks. It can separate the instrumental tracks out. So we gave him... shit. (laughs) Right, no, it's... it's, That's that's incredible. It's nuts. So, you know... So you're saying you could probably feed it a Robert Johnson recording and separate the guitar and and Absolutely, no question. He can take a mono Beatles recordings and separate them into John, Paul, and George singing at the same microphone clean. This is a major development. It's very serious stuff, and people are just finding out about it. So it was kind of thrilling to be able to use this on the the Shankar performance, and and it worked. So we got clean tracks of the sitar and the tabla and the tambora, the three instruments on stage, and Brian Kehue, my partner in audio crime, was able to create a great new stereo mix of this thing for the very first time. And this is something that two years ago we couldn't have done this. So time caught up with us at a certain point, or we caught up with time, or the future caught up with everybody, but it's quite remarkable. I don't know if you're going to top that as far as a technical achievement. I don't know. I'd like to. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm kind of thinking, well, what next? What else can we do? (laughs) But once you know about that technology, yeah, as you say, with Robert Johnson, you kind of start thinking about like, you know, I bet we could maybe do... Yeah, no, there's a lot of things you could do with that that would be game changers. After absorbing this full 35 hours for many years, is... (laughs) It's a loaded question, but is the Woodstock legend justified? Is it perhaps even underrated after what you've heard of it? or uh... It's different. It is justified, but maybe not in the way that the movie tells you it's justified. I mean, what you get from Woodstock is, you know, I never wanted to approach this as here's 32 sets of music and connective tissue. That wasn't the way I looked at this thing. I looked at this thing like one 
organism that has tendrils. It's a big piece of sound art that has 32 musical performances buried in it, but <laughs> it's not just that. And so, they also released a bunch of individual albums off of it, like the Joan Baez, right, and Credence. Yeah, yeah Concord have just done, I think Baez is just digital. Credence is a physical release that's out, and it's well-deserved. Lovely art direction on it, too. It's a great package. You know what? We have a little bit of Ravi Shankar, so let's judge the audio okay, magic that yeah. he did here. Wow! Right, not bad. You, you'd never know. That's in, that's yeah. No, this is a this is a game changer. Mm-hmm. This is this is really something. It's the beginning of something. As long as all the masters haven't been burned up, you know. <laughs> right. The, well, yeah, that's it, that's a subsidiary issue. Yeah, but yeah. yes, it does actually help to have tape. And you know, we were really lucky that all of those tapes had been competently preserved and stored for decades. You know, we can't forget that that's it's not something anybody should take for granted, especially nowadays. And so, yeah, no, the guys at Atlantic Records and then later the Warner Music Group have really they get that this stuff is important thankfully. And they've actually made it available. A lot of places wouldn't make tapes like this available for us to work with. That would have been impossible too. We have with us Michael Carabeo, who has played with many people, the Rolling Stones, a million people, but was with the original Santana band and is the percussionist in one of the most famous rock and roll movie moments of all time when they cut back and forth between Carlos and Mike, and it is an honor to have you here. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Or, or, how do you say it? How are you doing? <laughs> That's how we say it here in New York, yes. How are you doing? <laughs> so I was reading some of your accounts of Woodstock. You guys had no album out. People forget that. And Bill Graham made sure that you were in arrived early. You guys were in the actual town of Woodstock, where, of course, the festival did not take place. But you hung right. out there for a couple weeks. And right. it was boring. And during your time there, Carlos actually saved your life, right? Yeah, he doesn't quite remember it that way. Because, <laughs> I mean, here's a bunch of people from the Bay Area, you know, and we come up to the town of Woodstock. And, and it's like, ugh, you know, I mean, we don't know what to do. I think our manager had us rent a house like two weeks before the event. You know, we were playing a lot of stuff in San Francisco and whatnot. But I just remember that this was going to be... You know, just another gig to us kind of thing. So we were up in the town of Woodstock, and then we come to find out that Alan Grossman lived there, Jimi Hendrix was staying up there, Bob Dylan lived up there, and a bunch of other, uh, how could I say, writers and stuff like that. It was a very artistic town. Sure, sure. And then there was a cafe in town there that, like, nobody kind of went to. It seemed like just this coffee place that opened at night or something, and... We were so bored to be up there. A lot of us, uh, we found a swimming hole, and that's the swimming hole where uh, Greg Raleigh used to jump off the cliffs into this little lake kind of uh, thing. And me and Carlos went up for a walk one day and went up to the top of this thing to see what was up there. And you had to cross this little, kind of like a bank, a little river bank kind of thing, and you had to go across these rocks. So if you didn't jump all the way across or hit one of the rocks, you would fall in the water. And that was like maybe 20 feet from going over the waterfall kind of thing. And I remember Carlos jumped across it and I went, oh, man, how did he do that? And I tried to do it and I slipped. And there I was in the water and he put his hand out and grabbed my hand or I would have went over this waterfall. (laughs) Yeah, well, thank you, Carlos. And then the day of the performance, all the roads are closed and these Mm -hmm. two big military helicopters land in the parking lot across from the hotel where, where there was the base there, and you get in the helicopter with Jerry Garcia and Jack Cassidy. Right. <laughs> right. And, it, and Jerry it, was digging the scene or what? Pardon me? Jerry was enjoying looking at the sea of people as you were riding? Jerry, yeah, Jerry enjoyed everything. It's like, you know, here we are. 
let alone never have been in a helicopter, okay? <laughs> and there's like, I guess it's the National Guard that did that or whatever, right? That had transportation, but here's this helicopter, and then people are in this hotel going like, what's going on? How do we get there and whatnot? And there's all this confusion going on, and we don't know what's really going on at all. So they said, okay, well, you can't drive in. There's no way of getting in. We're going to take everybody by helicopter. So we kind of look at each other. We've never been in a helicopter. And let alone you're in a helicopter where there's no doors. <laughs> okay, so, okay, this is quite scary. So, you know, a couple of us went in different helicopters and whatnot. But I was in the helicopter with Jerry Garcia. And, and Jerry just went like, whoa, man, look at that. How cool, you know. And I'm going like don't even want to look down kind of thing. But there was just so, so, so many people. It was just overwhelming at the time, let alone we're in a helicopter, but seeing all these people. So we're still not aware of how big this concert's going to be. It was just another show for us. Absolutely. And then backstage, it looked like some huge picnic, you said, and you had no idea when you were supposed to go on. And all of a sudden, some guy just comes up and says, Santana, you were on. And Country yeah. Joe, who we just spoke to, was coming off the stage, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> Country Joe is a great guy. Oh, my God, I love him to death. We've done a couple of interviews together. He is uh, quite the funny guy. Love him very, very much. Uh, yeah, so we just got pulled up there. But at the same time, we landed in this helicopter, and then you have to keep your head down while the blade is going around, then you're leaving and you go like, okay, well, where's the dressing room or where's the locker room or where's it ever? And I guess they had this tent and everybody was just sitting there. I was like, there's no direction here of what we're going to do or whatever. And then all of a sudden you guys are on. So Man. we went on earlier than we were supposed to, but and then they made this huge stage that was like a merry-go-round. And I think the, the Grateful Dead people kind of made that. So you would set up one band on one side of it. So when the other band was finished, the stage would go around right. to the front, like, right? Like a carousel kind of thing. And I don't know who was before us or whatever, but it broke. <laughs> because they weren't looking at how many pounds or which kind of weight that you could put on this thing. So that broke right off the top. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Everything was in so much chaos, but I guess our generation at that time, we didn't call it chaos, you know, we just call it, okay, well, you know, we can make this happen, no big thing, but everybody was very, very open arms and understanding and uh, cooperating and everything just to make it happen. People keep saying, what was it like to play there? Well, if you remember what it like, it was like to play there, you didn't go, obviously, <laughs> well, because you well, can't remember these things. Well, Carlos was on either, accounts differ, either Mescaline or LSD. Were you on anything? Nope. <laughs> okay. It was of just course the... I'm going to say that. <laughs> of course I'm going to say that. I was more on stuff that it's kind of legal right now. How about that? All right, fair enough. That's not much at all. That, that's like that, yeah. At Woodstock, that was sober, yeah. So, the... Well, yeah, but the amazing thing, and I don't mean to interrupt you yeah. or everything, everybody goes, well, you know, how is it like playing there? It wasn't so much about the performers, I think it was about the crowd and the people who were there that came to see it. And we were just there to, and I don't like to use the name entertain, but we were part of that whole attendance that was there. We were part of the, the whole crowd that was there, but it was about the people. And, you know, and us playing the music of those times, it was a very, very, very creative time. Absolutely. For bands. 
in the last couple of moments we have left, you said you went to see the Woodstock movie and you were kind of surprised. You kind of looked at yourself differently after that, which I understand. But the moment that I was talking about, the famous soul sacrifice moment when it was cutting back and oh. forth between you and Carlos, did oh. you have any memory of that before you saw it in the movie? My guess is it probably was just another moment that went by and you never thought of again until you saw yourself. Or did it stand out as like, man, we were really cooking at that moment, even before you saw mm-hmm. the movie? No, you know, but it's so funny. You know, we were the kind of band that, I mean, even though the audience loved us and they had never seen conga drums or percussion or anything like that in a blues band, I think the moment that was so surprising to people that we kind of didn't look out there, we kind of played to each other. Right. That's you know? smart because and if you looked out there, you could get freaked out. Yeah, well, that's one of the, I mean, that's one of the things, but like you look out. And I remember a band teacher of mine telling me, if you don't want to get stage fright, and I don't know, what is stage fright, you know, is you look all the way to the last person in the auditorium or in the place you're playing. And you look up in the air and went like, oh my God, (laughs) that is so many, you know, so much people and stuff. We had a thing about just playing with each other. Absolutely. When we played, and it wasn't about we're badasses or whatever. That's just what we did. You know, we went up there to kick butt, period. And it was immortalized uh, forever. So, Michael Calabrero, thank you so much for calling in. Congratulations on 50 years since that oh, performance. And, and it's hard to do it. We're getting ready to do it on the 17th. I'm playing with Carlos at Woodstock. Exactly. Also. So it's all happening again. So everyone yeah. should uh, try to check that out. Before we end, Andy Zachs, any closing thoughts about your Woodstock adventure, which is now coming to a close? It is coming to a close. We were saying before, it is worth investigating in totality. There is something about the 360-degree aspect of just marinating in this for a weekend that I would recommend to almost anybody. Absolutely. I mean, you marinated in it for like a decade, but that's a whole different thing. That's a different story. That's, you know, it's between me and my shrink. You know, we discussed that, but it's, yeah. Would you like your next project to be something a little more compact? I don't know. I kind of like scale, I got to say. And I feel like, you know, once you've done this, I'm ready for more scale. So we'll see how that goes. But TBD. Well, congrats on this one. So this now has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. I was in the studio with Andy Zax. We talked Woodstock. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. It always helps, and I read them all, even the crazy ones. And as always, thanks for listening, and we will definitely see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.